Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there from chaos magic to hermeticism to meditation to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful, scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot, but check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the Adept Initiative is the place to go. The Adept Initiative is the flagship course on magic.me, and it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You are really going to dig it. Go check it out, and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Well, thank you so much for um, agreeing to do it. It's really good to see you, and I'm very honored, always. To talk to you. Thank you so much. See, I'm honored. I'm honored. Oh, I've on. got your well, your main book up here. I keep it near oh, me at wonderful. all times. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, this is. I have your book here. Oh yeah, this is one. good. I I love this. It is, and um, when I said when I say I love it, I say I, I mean it was profoundly sad, embarrassing, mm. and also hilarious. Uh, and I feel like this is a monument to the kind of epically cringe hubris of the Patagonia class, but even more cringe, I saw myself in it in terms of my own. Well, I think everyone's one of the things I was, we can get into this, but the mindset, how much it's infected everyone with their isolationism. And I certainly live in my own bubble, you know, so. Yeah. I mean, that was really what, what led me to write it was less my experience with the tech bros because that thing happened my my billionaire bunker experience was in 2018 it was during the covid crisis when i saw everybody bunkering in one way or another around me and then realizing that this was just the fulfillment of kind of amazon's dream of video doorbell <laughs> absolute you know absolute whatever that is a, a self-sovereign isolated surveillance uh, capitalism, uh, like, oh my, we're, we're all succumbing to it. Yeah. It's so funny because I, um, I remember, I think a couple of years before COVID, um, and before she died, Jen pointed out was observing people getting packages from Amazon prime and in Jen fashion said, oh, you know, they're training people to never leave the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know? Right. And they were, they are, I mean, Jen was right about pretty much everything. Um, the whole trick was, you know, that, that what people couldn't get, they would listen to Jen or even to, to William Burroughs before Jen and think that they were paranoid about a specific thing. Like, oh, the queen is doing this or the president's doing that. It's like, no, no, it was more, um, it was almost like a, a form of, you know, inst- institutional understanding that the environment is being tuned to do these things, not mm. some specific idiot at Amazon. I mean, maybe there is a specific idiot at Amazon who's got the idea, but they're more uh, responding to the to the atmospheric agenda than they are 
you know, particularly powerful, evil people. Yeah, it's like the the control is controlled by its need to control thing. It's just, <laughs> just control. Well, right. Where is control? We never find it, right? <laughs> right. Well, or that that what was that scanner darkly when the guy finds out he's the cop? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> uh, yeah, totally. Yeah, that's something that's missing from from people's finger pointing. I think that's. Um, well, maybe we should start off at the beginning. I I think mm -hmm. so. Your article that that generated this book is for me the most important article of the last five years. Um, and I, I think about it all the time and I'm going to think about it more than I've read the book. Um, so maybe we should start there, um, for people who don't know kind of the setup. Sure. Um, well, so I'm this, you know, technology writer and, you know, did all these books on, on media technology and society. And, um, usually they're kind of laughed off when they come out. And then like 10 years later, when they come true, people are like, oh, this guy's not an idiot after all. Um, and so it's happened enough that now occasionally kind of wealthy tech conferences will invite me to come, usually in the role of a, a kind of an intellectual dominatrix <laughs> to, uh, you know, I'm sure they have regular dominatrices when they're home, but, you know, to kind of you know, beat them into intellectual submission, you know, tell them the error of their ways and how they've succumbed to corporate capitalism. And they're like, oh, thank you, sir. May I have another? <laughs> um, and I go on my way, you know, as if spending, you know, being able to tolerate my ridicule for an hour somehow purges them of their guilt for all the AIs that they're sticking in our toasters or whatever. Um, you know, and the enslaved children, they're sending for the cobalt in the mines, all that stuff that they know that they're doing. Um, and this, I thought, was one of those. Um, but, you know, and I haven't actually shared what it really, really, really was. What it really, really, really was, was a hedge fund. It was either a hedge fund or it might have been a hedge fund service company, like some kind of financial company that like services hedge funds or does whatever hedge funds needs, like, you know, trades their stocks or something. And they invited like a hundred of their wealthiest clients out to this thing in the desert, which was not a James Bond <clears throat> secret meeting about the apocalypse so much as the way that they vacation with each other. And there was like a menu of events I only found this out later. It's like a menu of events. So it's like, do you want to meet a celebrity chef and learn how to make eggs Benedict, you know, with this food TV guy? Do you want to improve your golf swing for the hour with this? Or do you want to go hear Rushkoff talk about the digital economy? Right. So there were these different kinds of things like, you know, learn guitar picking from Kenny Loggins, <laughs> right? Learn, you know, souffles from Emeril, you know, learn, learn the, 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 how to stop your hook from Jack Nicholas. So it's or, like a real life masterclass. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Like real life masterclass experiences with people or me. So I'm sitting in the green room thinking that they're about to take me on stage to do a talk. Right. And I'm practicing my little, you know, Marxist screed. And the guy comes in and, you know, I think it's the guy with the lavalier mic, you know, that they clip on you and then take you out. But it's like four other guys follow him. So it's just these four, you know, 50 something wealthy dudes, you know, Patagonia dudes. 
um, who are four, I, you know, and I looked them up later. Four of them were billionaires, and one of them was close enough, you know, in the hundred centum millionaire, I guess. Um, and they they didn't want to hear my talk at all. They just wanted to do like this sort of Q and A, and it started out being a Q&A about what they should invest in, like, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum, uh, virtual reality or augmented reality. And I'm so not the one to ask that. You know, I'm the guy who would have said Betamax, <laughs> right? Not VHS, because Betamax is a better format. You know, I would have said CompuServe, not AOL, because CompuServe was text only and it wasn't bothering with all that crappy inner. So don't ask. I know what's going to happen in the big sense, but I never know red or black I don't know. It's going to be either red or black. It's going to be a big deal. It's like, what all I can tell you. Um, so bet on both, I guess, if you're going to be on in uh, on Team Rushkoff. Um, so they're asking me all those. And then finally, they get around to Alaska or New Zealand, <laughs> right? And so I realized what they're doing. You know, they want to know. And that's what they stayed on the rest of the hour was all of these questions about their bunkers and survival and uploading their consciousness, but it was mainly about their bunkers. And one of them had this these these plans for his underground bunker that was going to be these sort of shipping containers buried under the ground and this thing and that. And he had like a heated jacuzzi in there. And I'm like, dude, and this is just all I do. This is my life. You know, I tweak these people. I'm like, dude, you know, the guy next door to me has a heated pool. And, you know, he's all summer, there's like, vans in front of there bringing them new parts like where are you going to get new heaters and filters and all for your heated jacuzzi pool when after the apocalypse and the guy just like opens his moleskin book and he's like get he you know parts for a heated pool like they're really not thinking in advance at all so i started asking them about how do they defend their compounds from the likes of us when we don't have food and the climate refugees and all and they're like oh well we got Navy SEALs coming in. It's never Army Rangers. It's Navy SEALs, right? I'm an Army Ranger kind of guy. I, I, on land, right? But they are Navy SEALs who are coming. They've got, you know, their, their helicopters are on standby and gassed up at all times. You just push a button. The guys are going to either pick you up or meet you there. And that's going to... So then I started to tweak them with that. So, okay, so you got your Navy SEALs on your, on your you know, bunker island. How do you pay them after your money's worthless? They're like, Huh? Like, dudes, this is the end of the world, right? The electromagnetic pulse has come or whatever. The the climate disaster, your dollars aren't worthless. Your crypto, your 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 cryptos are worthless. Everything's worthless. So then they start brainstorming these ideas, like, oh well, you know, what if I'm the only one who knows the combination to the safe where the food is kept? Like, oh. Navy SEALs don't have any experience getting information out of people. It's like you're going to spend the apocalypse being constantly waterboarded, right? Until, until you give them every piece of it. That's, that, that sounds like fun. you know. Or then one of them said, we're going to have these implants that are going to control who can get into what room. So they'll have an implant. And then maybe we could also have it you know, electrocute, like shock the people if they start not behaving or doing the wrong. And and it, it was bizarre, right? So the, for me, it was like, okay, here are the wealthiest, most powerful people I've ever been in the same room with in my life, yet they feel utterly incapable of influencing the future, that the best they can do is see the future as this sort of Im immovable disaster that they can plan for or maybe mitigate, but they can't, they can't do anything about it. And that's what set me off on this whole journey to look at, you know, how have we gotten to the place where the job of the wealthy is to earn enough money to insulate themselves 
from the damage they're creating by earning money in that way. This problem with colonization that you just keep externalizing pain and torment. And then it, it's, it's, it's Thomas Jefferson's the way he talked about slavery. He said, it's like having a wolf by the ears, right? <laughs> you can't let go of it because it'll jump you. So that's their approach to reality. And it was the, it's just the, 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 the sad, uh, unimaginative, um, uh, I, I was just so disappointed. And then, you know, so then, yeah, I wrote this article that then caught fire because people went, Oh my God, these guys really do just want to get away from the rest of us. Yeah. the, yeah, I love the shot callers thing. That was so disturbing. Um, <laughs> I, I think the, the, there were a lot of reasons the the article just was burned into my mind for the last several years. But one of them is it's the only time I can think of where, you know, it's like that article was like getting a peek behind the curtain. And it's not because you have the privilege of access. You can access you, you, you in this situation got access to these people. And it's like not these people controlling the world. It's people worrying about, you know, they can't throw money at a problem. And it's, uh, um, at once I felt it was, I mean, kind of humanizing, but also it's disturbing that, you know, it's like, oh, even the people in control have no, I it truly are not in control and have no ability to, you know, and they're also terrified. So, right. They are terrified. And the ones who, who are the, the least terrified really are the ones who, have given up on humanity. You know, the ones who believe, you know, like Musk or McCaskill, or all these folks with a, a, a effective altruism, you know, Sam Bankman Fried was one of them, yep. uh, or probably still is, the idea that human beings now are in the larval stage, that we're like the maggots on the original home planet. And we're only important insofar as we spawn the our winged, you know, digital successors. That 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 will be. It's but believe me, you. It's a, the things going to Mars and throughout the universe. That's not us. That's our our AI counterparts that get sent there. The robot futures, the place where Sam Altman uploads his consciousness. You know, he's the guy behind OpenAI who, who, like Kurzweil, wants to upload himself to the computer before he dies and live on in that way. You know, that's who goes in the spaceships. And that's such a, um, uh, I mean, and that's what I write about in the book, obviously, is the is the way that the, this goes all the way back to Francis Bacon and the beginning of empirical science and this, you know, distrust of women and nature. You know, Francis Bacon's famous quote, you know, that science will let us take nature by the forelock and hold her down and submit her to our will. Right? Yeah, I wanted to talk about that because obviously that will be because you kind of mentioned the context. It's very surprisingly the context of the oppression of women and witchcraft. I think that would, of course, be interesting to yeah. people who listen to this podcast that you kind of took it all the way back to uh, enlightenment, renaissance thinking, and and the birth of science and the oppression of magic. Right. Right. Which is what it is. I mean, because you, the, the interesting thing about digital is digital makes everything explicit, right? It becomes explicit code. And it's, so, it's such an interesting thing to compare um, code and incantation, right? Incantation is is... Well, as you know, as a as a practicing magician, the you 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 uh, a practicing mage. Wow, um, that's a, you, what, level twenty seven, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, you can't openly. You know, there's a there's as much give as take in in 
appropriately executed magic, right? If you're like, I'm going to do magic to get that woman in bed. No, 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 no. Don't do it like that. That's code, right? That's code. I'm going to get that one how I want it. It's like, if you're doing magic, you're going to bring uh, uh, Eros. You know, I want to open to Eros and I'm going to do a bunch of... It's going to be pretty friggin' open-ended and it has to be if you're going to start playing with those powers. But, but... But technology and code as opposed to magic is closed. It's about narrowing the possibilities, which is why when you see the winners of that game, the tech bro billionaires, they're not open-minded. They're closed-minded, mm. end-of-the-world apocalypse survivalist, zero-sum game. Uh, uh, you know, uh, there, there, there's a paucity of imagination and, of course, an inability to make connection with other people, to make eye contact, to do any of the things that you would think that genuine empowerment would engender. That's really interesting. I was thinking, as you mentioned that, you know, it's like magic when it's done best is open-ended and therefore involves a lot of trust. You're kind of putting it out there and (laughs) trusting that the universe knows better than you. I mean, it's very much biblical as well. It's like, not by my will, but by thine, let it be done. And the sense that there is a benevolent higher intelligence that knows is almost parental, that knows what you need better than you do. Or, you know, you could even make it like the Rolling Stones thing. You don't always get what you want, but you get what you need. I mean, that's what you right. want. But what you're and, I, and um, the code metaphor is like, that's much more like dealing with a demon where you need everything in a contract because it's going to mess everything up. It can. Right. Right. You do yeah. have to do when they make you sign, right? Yeah. You're going to sell your soul. You got to sign in blood. There's no trust, right? Yeah. Which is really interesting. It's, it is, it's, it's not I mean, even a covenant with God, even a, mm-hmm. a, a biblical covenant is kind of open. I mean, God got pretty specific with Abraham. I'm going to give you this and your kids are there. You get back this land. And I mean, it's like, I think people took God too literally in those phrases. I think you could, mm-hmm. you could do the same open-ended thing with it, but, but you're exactly, you're exactly right. And, and that's the way when they do unleash algorithms, I mean, Think about it from a magical sensibility. I'm going to create uh, an entity that's going to identify the psychological, emotional, and spiritual weaknesses in other people and exploit them in order to get them to do things that are against their best interests. I mean, we're right. basically programming demons and unleashing them out demons. into the Yeah, into no, the absolutely. Internet. Uh, and people are putting their own consciousness in it. And I think that, no, I, I explicitly see it that way. Mm-hmm. I really do. Um, it's a, it's the zero trust model, which is is held up as such an ideal, like with crypto and things like that. You want exactly. zero trust systems. Oh, we've replaced, there's no need for human trust at all <laughs> in this system. So none at all. It's like, well, shoot. Well, then there's no need for humans either then, is there? Why don't you just run your blockchain and we could all die? I mean, the the, the, the object of the game is not to substitute for trust, but to engender trust, you know, and have, and have fun. You right. know, we could, but, but they're always- Which is the basis of economic exchange, you know, which is always You would missed. think, yeah. you would think, but now I'm, I'm starting to understand economics as a last resort. You know, you go to the ledger, you go to the scorecard, you go to the instant replay when the social fabric has torn, when it hasn't worked out right, then we'll go look at the numbers. But it's like, if you're living in an appropriate society, everyone's nice. Do you need food? Here's some food. 
you know, it's like we all say it all comes out in the wash. I would never worry about how many hours have you done on my podcast versus my hours on yours. And is it equal? Come on. This is everything we, every point of contact we have is good for both of us, you know, and if, if we can't see it that way. You know, we're lost. That's really interesting to, to talk about that in the... I mean, I was going to say this for later, but we might as well get straight into the magical thinking. Um, uh, it's interesting to think about that in terms of... Um, it, the way that I think about it, the higher trust... And in, in just, I don't even... Not leaving out the word magic. It's like your mm-hmm. relationship with the universe, your relationship with life. The higher trust it is, like we're talking about, you know, trusting in a higher benevolent intelligence that knows better than you, whether that's magic or religion or faith or just whatever it is, like that's kind of what you want. And the less trust you have, the more demonic it gets. And it's the same with relationships or or even of any type with other people where the less, the more transactional it becomes, the more, the more demonic it is, you know, like the, the more the more you're getting into trouble, you know, and that's like, you know, it's like with friends who are like keeping tat or in a relationship, people, you know, keeping score in a relationship or, uh, right. you know, becomes very, uh, antisocial. Right. right? And, and those things are appropriate maybe in prison camps, you know, where there's like very little stuff, right. There's only going to be like one egg for 30 dudes. And how are we going to make sure it's like, and that's why it's funny. All those, um, the, the game theory that they do that they use to sort of say how human behavior works, you know, so they'll use like the prisoner's dilemma, you know, the prisoner. Okay. So if you confess, then you get this many years, but if you don't confess, then he'll get that many and all that. And people, you know, they think that people will do the selfish thing. It's like, wait a minute. But the underlying premise is that we are prisoners being interrogated in a war it's like wait a minute that's a very to me i don't know just me but that's a very particular circumstance right (laughs) that's funny that reminds me um one of the i'm sure you know ralph abraham the chaos man oh yeah yeah so i've had him on the podcast a couple times and one of the time one of the things he said to me that is one of the most hopeful things i've ever heard is he said when they were first doing chaos math there was all this interest from corporations and government like and funding. And that's why it was so trendy in the eighties because they thought they could use it to do predictive modeling on the stock market or human behavior. And then they realized the, the outcome was they mathematically discovered that it is literally impossible to predict anything from data. And so they killed chaos mathematics and buried that. They're like, no, 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 too many salaries are writing on this. But that for me was so encouraging. It's like, yes, like, you know, human beings are not predictable through any model. Right. I know. It's funny because I've talked to those guys. I mean, I knew out, I knew Ralph really well in the uh, really late 80s when I was first starting out and before I wrote Siberia and was interested in this the nexus between, you know, his stuff, you know, chaos, Gaia, Eros, you know, and, and, uh, psychedelics, digital technology, fantasy role-playing, cultural change, all those things were coming together. You know, he was friends with, with Rupert Sheldrake and Terrence McKenna. It was all, that that was the, those were the trialogues of, of our time. And I became really interested in, in, uh, what they called stochastics, which is the application of fractals and and to the stock market, and research and went deeper and deeper and deeper, and finally found the guy um, at Credit Suisse or Suisse, I guess, who was in charge of um, stochastics, and you know went out for lunch with him, and then finally he admits, oh, this is really it's a really good way 
of showing the order between what happened. But it's utterly useless in telling people what's going to happen. It's like all stochastics proves is that you'll be able to see the pattern after it. <laughs> Afterwards, yeah, in hindsight, yeah. yeah. It's like, okay. <laughs> Which you could already do, you know, about math, right. yeah. <laughs> so it's wonderful. It's like you could paint a very pretty picture. You could tell a very pretty story about what has just happened. But it doesn't really arm you mm. um, uh, for the future, except to understand deep down that you really don't know, you know. And that should be freeing, right? If you really, really don't know, it should be liberating. But who? I mean, that was the the, the other core insight of my billionaires meeting was the internet that I came up with, you know, with with Timothy Leary and and Jaron Lanier and Are You Serious and William Gibson was about unleashing the 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 kind of uh, unbridled potential of the collective human imagination that the internet was going to create wobble it was going to turn this read only media universe in which we were living through television um, into a read write universe and unpredictability and novelty would come forward these guys investors when they see that, they don't want novelty they want predictability you know they want cuz they're making a bet and they want the highest probability that that bet is going to come true so instead of giving us technology to make wild unpredictable things happen they turn technology on us to make us more predictable and that is the digital world that we're living in one where technology is used on human beings to make human beings act more like machines and AI is just the latest, um, you know, the, the latest uh, uh, generation of such technologies. Maybe the the most powerful one because people are more and more willing to let AI um, behave for them, you know, to do the things for them. But they're not doing it. That's all an AI does. All AI writing is is what's the most predictable next word? Hmm. What's the most predictable probable next sentence? And we are going to. If we surrender to probability, everything narrows down to nothing. You know? <laughs> mm. Talk about will. You know, the will goes away in a world of absolute probability. As you're saying that, I'm wondering if that's a big reason why so much of pop culture just seems to be repetitions of previous things and remakes of previous things at this point because they're betting on things that did well in the past. Yeah, it's all the and Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. And everything, because even when you um, try to pitch like a new kind of TV show, it's like, you know, okay, MASH meets Orphan Black, you know, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> you know? And then they're happy. Okay, as long as you can combine two two existing things from the rearview mirror. And, and those did well financially in, in the numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it's, you know, they're, they're, Netflix algorithm tells the executives what to look for. You know, and then it's about Mary, who's coming in with, you know, uh, uh, obvious, you know, it was that that was how House of Cards happened. Hmm. It was like Kevin Spacey, David Fincher, politics. You know, the algorithm spit that out. Yeah, you make the interesting point uh, towards the end of this book where you're saying, you know, even these, you know, hedge fund, hedge fund billionaires like Ray Dalio and people like that, they're not making their own decisions. The algorithms are, are thinking for them. For the most part, yeah, you know, and because you, you look at Ray Dalio or or any of those guys or Fink, the guy that runs um, uh, uh, BlackRock, mm. they they 
come out with these letters. They write one like every year or two. You know, our new our hedge fund, our venture fund is now committed to the you know, fostering the human potential and we're going to turn a new leaf and sustainable this and that. And they're just doing the same thing every time. They're doing whatever the um whatever the algorithm told them to in hmm. terms of their 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 bets. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that book that Ray Dalio put out, The Principles One, is all about how to get algorithms to think for you explicitly. Like, that's his entire philosophy. Yeah, exactly. It's this Tim Ferriss kind of future. Yeah. Or or these guys. You know, who is that book, the, the book about how to fake things, um, where you're supposed to, like, go find a bookstore in Cambridge and then put on your resume that you spoke at Harvard? You know, <laughs> it's like that's apparently what uh, what's that guy's name that people are watching now? That podcaster, um, the really milk toast one. What's this guy's name? He's the one that uh, he's he's the one that claims he's an MIT research scientist, but he never went. Right there's the there are these guys right, yeah. and then they write books on how to do that. He just had um, a library card or something like that. Uh, I can't remember his you name, know, but he's he's really popular right now. There's a bunch of them is the sad thing. You know, I almost pre prefer Lex, a Gary Vaynerchuk or something. Lex Friedman. That's the one. Oh, yep. God. No, they're all, it's all, ugh, it's nuts. And then, you know, and then people, people aspire to that. But that's sort of the Trumpism thing, you know, mm. think it, be it, get it, you know, the, it's the dark side of Norman Vincent Peale and magical thinking. It's, it's theosophy, you know, theosophy as capitalism, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. Yeah, I think that's the crux of what I want to talk about with you. And mm. um, and that is just, I want to talk to you about the magical thinking of tech bros mm. compared to quote unquote R. It's not really R, but R magic, right? It's like so much of this book we're talking about, you know, and my experience of tech bros, just like there's this level of like sociopathy where they're like, I had a vision at Burning Man on mushrooms and I have to save the world on the blockchain. And, right. you know, people having mystic visions. And uh, I know so many people like this. They're like, the blockchain spoke to me on mushrooms and I must go out and and uh, bring everyone together. Um, and this, there is a certain level of magical thinking and delusion required to be an entrepreneur. But and it's so bizarre, like whether you're just mentioning this kind of theosophy as capitalism or some of the things you touched on earlier, I think the, the thing about leaving the planet as human beings being larval, that's a very counter. I mean, that's like Burroughs had that idea. Yeah. You know, Grant Morrison had that idea. So there's like this bizarre, I don't know what to call it. You know, is it a dark, is it, is it the reverse side or is it just kind of this mimetic drift? Have all these people... I don't think these people have necessarily grown up reading the same things, but they probably read or watched things that have been influenced by things that have been influenced by other things. Um, but that for me, the kind of like magical thinking nexus of, of kind of, uh, or, or perhaps as you would put it, where it kind of intersects with the mindset, uh, is really interesting and really critical because, you know, uh, I, I have often been surrounded by people like this. They never invite me to their parties and they never pay me anything. But, you know, it's like, oh. I, I know a lot of people like this. You, know? you got to get the money, man. Yeah. Um, you could easily play it with magic and shit. They would they would eat that up, right? Well, any, any now, tips appreciated. But yeah, I'm, I'm a little, afra I'm a little afraid to, though, you know, just because like, I don't know what I'm unleashing there. But yeah. Right. You know, we should, we should see, we should send out to do that is uh, Mitch Horowitz. 
We oh, should yeah. make him because he's got good good enough psychic armor. He could go in there and do it, and he could come back and tell us whether it's safe to try. Mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. he's he's got an adventurous <laughs> put on that leather yeah, jacket yeah. and go. In. Well, I have I, done some of it. I mean, I, I did. I work with Google on their on their AI thing a little bit. But, right. Yeah. I know. So, so and but you it's, might be it's, infected already. Oh, I am for sure. You. Yeah, I am. Uh, <laughs> no, but these guys are not. It's not. I mean, magical thinking and magical practice are kind of two. It's only to build antibodies, though, just to oh, cover. Yes, that. to yeah. increase your for all of us. Yes, right. Then yes. we'll draw your blood and exactly. make a vaccine. Yeah, please, please do <laughs> for all of us. But then but you'll they, be infected they, with me. So, I mean, it's a bit like acid. You know, you 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 put a tech bro on acid and you get a tech bro on acid, right? That's their set and setting. If their, if their set and setting is, is control and, and self-sovereignty and money, then, you know, they're going to come back with that. So, yeah, I mean, I was working on a play. I still want to do it about, you know, five tech bros who go to do ayahuasca down in uh, South America and they have the vision and want to save the world and all that. And that then would the be hilarious. Act, Please do them, that. Please do that. That's, that's, you see that's them on such their G5 on the way back, you know, just rationalizing that the social networks and evil algorithmic stuff they do is the way to save the world, that that is the expression of Gaia. You know, so they, they I mean, I, I think they're going to have to throw one of them off the plane. One of them who stays enlightened, they're going to have to kill him before they get back. Maybe they just chuck him out. But, but it's a, uh, it's funny. It's almost more fun to talk about the play than actually to do it. Cause what, sitting and watching a play takes like two hours where we can kind of get the punchline in two minutes, but, but these guys, so on acid, they do have, and, and I wrote about them. They go to Burning Man. It was like, I was calling that chapter, uh, a funny thing happened on the way back from the playa, right? They, they, they have the playa experience and then they, they, think because they think of themselves as masters of the universe tech bros it's like okay i understand ecosystems now i'm going to build eco villages i'm going to clear cut 5 miles of old growth forest in the netherlands or somewhere and build my sustainable solar panel you know sort of uh, nothing against them but my sort of game b paradise uh uh you know uh, uh, meta modern facility, and I'm going to have a software stack for education, a software stack for spirituality. I'm going to have a blockchain thing for this, and cocoa trees, and this and that, and use indigenous wisdoms on this stack. <laughs> and it's like, dudes, it's like Neom is sort of the ultimate one of those. This this city that they want to build in Saudi Arabia. So. It's a multi-billion dollar project. There's multi-billion dollars already in it. And it's partly the Saudi Arabian government, partly other sovereign wealth funds, a bunch of billionaires. And they hired, you know, the former head of one of the big studios, like 10 major uh, regenerative architects, um, all these people to build a city. It's like 100 miles long and one or two miles wide. It's a long thing in this little zone that some climatologists have said is going to be a, a mild, temperate zone inside um, Saudi Arabian desert. And so they're going to build this giant thing with all this fractal architecture and solar panels and education and water things and self-generating blah, blah. The only problem is it turns out that 
in order to build this completely sustainable, futuristic eco city, they've got to move these like five or 10,000 Bedouins who've been living sustainably on this land for like 5,000 years. It's like it's the like, more things change, the more they stay right. the same. So yeah. we got to get rid of these ones. And so we can, uh, but it's always colonization, right? It's always, how are we going to, they don't, they don't want to see it. But again, so that is, you know, tech bros on magic. We're going to think it, we're going to imagine it. Their way they imagine is through an almost Sim City like um, building ex nihilo. So the, the, any place that they, excuse me, any place that they imagine settling is uh, like, like, empty. It's like this state. That's why I say ex nihilo. It's like, there's nothing there as if you can just go and, and not acknowledge that there's, this is a story that's already in motion. There is no new beginning. You can't reboot. That's what they want to do. Let's reboot civilization, go from game A to game B. Well, that was, that was the colonization of North America. Right. There's nobody there. And that's back to what Hobbes who said, you don't have to act like there's any living people there. Those people who are there, they're just like animals. You could treat them like shrubs because they're not saved Christians. They're not individualized post enlightenment humans. They're just blah. So just go kill them, which is what we did. And where we still see it, any of these folks are, and now us. And that's why we're waking up. The tech bros see us like the colonizers saw the natives, you know, the it, it's it's. I was just writing this. Like, if if you want to think of social media as the missionaries, artificial intelligence are the conquistadors, right? The missionaries come, engender us to the tech, get us speaking that language, do all the intelligence gathering, and then pass all that to the AIs who come to actually conquer the species. Interesting uh, and disturbing. Um, <laughs> in in that light. One thing I wanted to talk about is, I mean, you refer to this as this kind of colonizer, you refer to this as the mindset. So it's colonizer mindset, fear mindset, bubble mindset. Um, But one thing, the thing that I kept thinking about throughout the book was not so much the billionaires, but the rest of us. How much have we been infected by this mindset? And And particularly in the last couple of years, just the extent to which people have been taught to be afraid of each other whether it was the pandemic, don't, don't get six feet from somebody don't, you know, other people are all disease vectors or, you know, anything you say, everyone will cancel you or, you know, and you actually talk about in this book, the classic, you know, experience of, uh, which I'm very sorry about, by the way, that you're getting mugged in park slope, which usually, uh, usually makes people much more afraid of people, but it seems like that. I mean, I don't want to go so far as to say this is a planned thing, but I mean, it's like, maybe it's just more of a, an infection, but a top down trickle down infection of the mindset where certainly the middle class. And that's kind of what I was saying at the beginning of the podcast, where I was seeing my own isolating and bubbling tendencies, which we've all been trained and encouraged to do during the pandemic. You know, now we're all kind of acting in the same way, or maybe hopefully not, you know, but, but certainly a lot, a lot of people are where it's just this kind of increasing bunker fear mentality. And I wonder how much of that is playing into the the control system. Well, I mean, in part, the technologies we use engender this uh, psychology, if nothing else. You know, we don't, we don't, this is what I was writing about back in my, my book, Team Human. You know, we have um, almost disabled the painstakingly evolved 
mechanisms for establishing rapport and social cohesion. So I can see your head nodding now as I'm talking, but that's really the only feedback I'm getting. I can't see if your pupils are getting larger or smaller. I can't tell if our breathing rates are sinking up. So partly what happens, you say you agree with me, but my body doesn't have the cues it needs to know that that's true. So my body assumes it's not true. So the more you say you agree with me in social media, the more suspicious I get. My mm. norepinephrine comes up or my cortisol rather than my oxytocin. So my mirror neurons don't fire. You know, the oxytocin doesn't go through my bloodstream. We don't bond in that way. So the technologies themselves engender the, the suspicion and the paranoia and the isolation. And then they use that, that low-level constant state of fear, panic, um, suspicion to sell us more stuff that encourages it. So you get the Amazon doorbell with the video on it and the little messages. So it just sort of automatically comes. We buy technologies that are sold to us as replacing human labor, but actually just camouflage the human labor. You know what I was calling the dumbwaiter yeah. effect that, you know, the dumbwaiter we think, oh, it was there to, so Thomas Jefferson's enslaved servants wouldn't have to trudge up the stairs, but it was really there. So Jefferson and his guests wouldn't have to see the enslaved person bringing it. It was just the last 10 feet. It comes up with uh, automatically like from a Star Trek replicator, you know, and it's like, no, the labor is still there. The, the, uh, the, the, the magically concocted Amazon t-shirt that they say is made all by robots Who's getting the parts for those robots? Who's picking the cotton for right. those T-shirts? Right. You know, who's bringing the shirt to you? It's all still labor. It's just even lower skilled, worser treated humans than before. Yeah, there's there was that that I I was going to bring that up next because that was so um, uh, uh, critical. I think and and what I thought when I read that was, you know, you were talking about for instance, delivery workers being hidden. So you don't see people who see the people who bring the packages to your doorbell or doorstep. You just see the picture of the package on your doorstep texted to you. But then I thought, well, you know, in the grand scheme of things, America had, or the, the quote unquote so-called first world, you know, all of the, you know, the global poor are hidden from us. You mm -hmm. know, the people who grow the coffee, the people who grow the crops or, or pick things or, or build things in, in China. Like you mentioned the, uh, uh, toxic chemicals that people use to wipe off fingerprints off of phones, which was disturbing. So there's kind of, I was like, yeah, there's, there's levels to this, you know, there always seems to be the one rung down that is, ab, you know, hidden from the next level up. And that's something that's really profoundly disturbing to me about our world and has been for a long time. And I, obviously the most extreme version of that or not, there's always more extreme, but a very extreme version <laughs> of that is human trafficking or the number of people who are in prisons in this country, many of whom are doing slave labor, essentially. And that's just hidden and, and kept invisible. And that's one of the most disturbing things about um, this world that we're in currently. Right. And then that's why, you know, I go back to look at, you know, the invention of the assembly line and the early factories and how none of those were about making goods faster. It was about, you know, removing human beings from the equation because human beings are unpredictable. Human beings might demand more money. Human beings are going to develop skills. Then the human being is adding value to the chain rather than just, you know, uh, uh, minutes of labor. Yes. And it screws everything up, you know. So we, we, Everything, you know, the, the in industry was about that. 
Digital did not have to be about that. Digital could have reversed that. And that's why I kept calling it even in the early 90s. I was saying, no, no, this is not a revolution. It's a renaissance. We're not going to go back in a circle and repeat the same thing. It's a renaissance. It's a rebirth of old ideas in a new context. So we're going to retrieve all those great things from the Middle Ages and medieval times that got repressed in the Renaissance, for, for all the good that the Renaissance may have done, you know, it was about individualism. It was about the perspective of the individual and centralization of control, you know, central currency, chartered monopolies, colonization. I mean, it was great in that it allowed those European nations to expand, but it was really bad for indigenous people and people of color around the world. It's bad for nature, bad for women, bad for magic, bad for witchcraft. You know, it was bad for herbs, bad for holism, you know, bed for a whole lot of stuff that we can now, I thought, retrieve with digital because digital was going to bring us back to the fingers, you know, hands on, you know, value creation, people working together. We would, even McLuhan talked about this, that digital would retrieve the commons, you know, which is what he was really into and um, subsidiarity and small business. And, um, and it still can. It's just that what happened so far is industrialists double down on industrial capitalism and use digital technology to amplify it, speed it up, while distancing us even further from the human costs and externalities of everything we're doing. But it obviously reached its peak because now we've got you know, global unrest and climate change and mass migration and the collapse of nation states or city states. Uh, um, we've got all the stuff that that the tech bros, the leaders of this movement now realize we can't make a car that goes fast enough to escape from our own exhaust. You know, no matter how many batteries it has, there's still kids going into the ground to get the rare earth metals to make the batteries. The batteries have to go somewhere. The electricity still uses coal. It's like, you don't, in the end, there's some basic laws of physics that you really just mm. don't get away from. And I know there's people listening right now. They're like, yeah, but nuclear, nuclear will do it. Or fusion, fusion will do it. It's like, yes, yes, yes. But in the end, we're just spending more energy senselessly to increase the, 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 the acceleration because it has to increase for, in order to maintain a central bank-based balance sheet, right? The only reason we need to grow and expand the economy and do more activity and work harder is because we have a banking system that was invented by, by monarchs in the 11th, 12th, and 13th century to preserve their uh, their domination over a rising middle class, right? At, at a very under very different circumstances. How do you? So, I, I actually don't know too much about that. How do you? So how do you there mean? was after the Crusades, which were nasty. Um, we had opened up all these trade routes to Moorish places, to Arab places, and we brought back a lot of uh, Arab innovations with us to um, to Europe. And one of them was the bazaar, or what we call the marketplace. <laughs> That's when we got the market. Was after, um, really you know, after the Crusades. Wow, and that was the no market idea. that would be just outside each city, and the peasants who would normally bring all their crop to the to the um, to the lords, you know, to the vassals who brought it to the lords because they were delivering up. They started bringing their their surplus to the marketplace and selling it to each other. So that was the first time you had like the guy who raises chickens trading with the person who grows the, the, you know, the grain trading with the, the people who make the fabric. And they developed these, um, 
what they called market monies. And there were all different kinds. I mean, there was grain-based currency and some of them were based in nothing. You know, they could be a loaf of bread as a coin. But the idea was these, these, these coins were issued in the morning, like when you enter a, a poker game and you get chips at the beginning of the game. You might not even buy in with your chips. You just know what they're all worth then. At the end of the day, you settle up. So they would have poker chips that they would use to trade at the beginning of the day, and then they would all expire at the end of the day. So they had all these different kinds of money that were optimized for transaction and trade between people, and people got rich. The former peasants became what were known as the burghers or the bourgeois, right? They became the rising middle class. And as the middle class got wealthy, the aristocracy got relatively poor. The aristocracy were the old lords of feudalism who hadn't worked you know, in a millennium and they never created value. So they had to stop the rise of the middle class. So they came up with two main inventions that we now take for granted today. One was the chartered monopoly or what we now call the corporation. Chartered monopoly said that, okay, there's all these people making and selling shoes. I'm going to give just one shoe license, you know, so I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it, give it to you. Right? So Jason, you are now his majesty's royal shoe company. You awesome. have a monopoly charter. My giving you a piece of paper that says you are the only one who is allowed to sell shoes in my kingdom. So anyone else who's a shoemaker has to become your employee. Well, to, right? so to, that, to, to sell myself, I am a shoe in for the role. Oh, good. Oh, beautiful. That's okay. My people were shoe people. The Rittners and the Rushkoffs were, were shoe, had a shoe store. We were that, shoe that people. Was a, that was a terrible pun, but. No, it was a beautiful pun, <laughs> but no, you are shoeing, but it's a different shoe actually when they, they shoe something, but we'll talk about that later. Um, it's an important distinction, mm. linguistic distinction, different, different etymology. Um, but, but, but it is interesting because you think of it as like kicking it with your little shoe into the, into the, the golf ball, into the hole. Mm. But if you had the exclusive, um, and this is the making the story a little bit longer, but if you have the exclusive charter to do it, now you don't want the skilled shoemakers working for you because they charge a lot of money. You want to go to the medieval equivalent of the Home Depot parking lot, get 10 undocumented aliens, and teach each one of them how to do one tiny portion of the shoe process. So you could train them in 15 minutes. If they act up, you get rid of them and bring in another one, right? So that's the moment we put the clock on the tower in the medieval village because now instead of someone selling the the value they created, they're selling human time. That was the first time we used time for wages, time for employment since indentured servitude, since like biblical stuff, since real slaves, right? So it was it was an odd shift. The other main shift was central currency. So instead of letting people use all these local monies that were optimized for transaction, free monies that you just use to trade, to keep track, like IOUs. Now, if you use one of those, we're going to send the Knights Templar, which is what Philip the Fair did, you're, you're the famous Knights Templar, we're going to send them in and kill you, right? You're not allowed to use that. You've got to use coin of the realm with our god or our monarch on the coin. But the way you get that coin of the realm is you borrow it from the central treasury at interest. So in order for me to transact with you, I've got to borrow money from the bank at interest and eventually pay the bank back more than I borrowed. Where does the additional money come from? The economy has to grow. We got to go and colonize some other place and enslave their people and take their resources and grow the economy so that the wealthy can be paid because the wealthy are still not working. They just have a monopoly on money granted by the king. They 
they make money by having money, right? They make money by having a monopoly on money. That's the beginning of central banking. And it's where all the way down to today, when even Biden or any politician says, oh, you know, we've got to create jobs, you know, we've got to create jobs and grow the economy. And I always say, well, wait a minute. Do we really want jobs? Jobs are a relatively new invention, right? Jobs are a form of indentured servitude, employment, the unemployment problem. There's not an unemployment problem. If AI and robots are going to do all the work, I'm more than happy to do all the play, right? The only, the only employment problem should not be that it's the, the only justification for employment now is not that there's work that needs to be done. It's that you're not allowed to participate in the spoils of capitalism unless you have a job, right? And so you're going to get a job making a piece of plastic that nobody wants that we're going to have to get advertisers to convince people to buy that's going to make their lives bad. We're going to have to convince kids that they're not skinny enough so they buy more of this crap that they don't really need to make themselves unhealthy just so that you can have a job. But it's that's crazy, right? So there's jobs and the chartered monopoly which says that we're not allowed to create business, that these that these giant companies need to be kept alive because they are um, the exclusive uh, uh, purveyors. What you get, though, is even though companies are not born as monopolies today, in order to function, they need to become monopolies. So that's what Cory Doctorow writes a lot about. Amazon and Facebook and Google, they need to become monopolies in order to achieve success in the economy as it was structured by these dudes in the Renaissance, right? So the Renaissance is when that stuff happened, all this centralization, the creation of the mythology around the nation state. Nation states aren't real. We had city states that were these sort of natural amalgamations of people. The nation state was this artificial boundary. You're not, you're not Venetian, you're Italian, right? It's, it's an artificial political boundary. So now, um, you know, we live under that and it's funny that it's, it's in its last gasp, we get Brexit, we get make America great again, because the mythologies need to be reinforced because people are waking up to the fact that these nation states aren't real. There's nothing about them. This is nothing. They're artificial political boundary structures. But those are both Renaissance era inventions. And a lot of us, or certainly I, thought that digital, digital being as big as the printing press, right? That in the original Renaissance, we got printing press, we circumnavigated the globe, we got perspective painting, um, we got the invention of the individual, we got the the, the central currency and, and corporization. If we have another Renaissance, then all the things that were repressed in that original Renaissance could now be reborn. So we'll get women, paganism, the commons, um, you know, and we see the same stuff. We see instead of... Uh, um, uh, Instead of perspective painting, we get the holograph or the fractal. We get, you know, increased dimensionality. Instead of uh, circumnavigating the globe, which they did then, we orbited the globe from space. You know, so there's a lot of parallels to this moment, to the original Renaissance. But the things we we're going to bring back are not doubling down on the stupid things we we rebirthed in the original Renaissance, like colonization and effective altruism, we should rebirth the things that got repressed. And hmm. we see that in the okay. culture that you and I talk about, okay. you know, the Genesis Peorage and, and gender and women and paganism and magic of the good sort and culture and the commons. Um, those things Honestly, if they don't come back, we all die, right? It's Terence's thing about the, the uh, we're, we're not necessarily a dying civilization, but we are in rebirth. You know, if the baby doesn't, isn't allowed to be delivered, 
if they really sew the vagina shut, which is what the tech bros want to do, prevent the baby from coming out and launch off the planet into space, we all die, right? Instead, we've got to, you know, uh, uh, not to get Joni Mitchell on you, but, you know, just go back to the garden here. You know, it's, it's this is not rocket science. It's literally not rocket science. Elon Musk is rocket science. This right. is is so much easier. It's so, Yeah. I feel that at its core, I mean, I'm just thinking of so many things as you're saying this. I mean, it's like at its best, at its core, and what was hoped for, uh, and 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 still can be hoped for, I think, is the idea that that the tech technology can create new models that better structure society in the sense that Buckminster Fuller, I think, in the 70s said, you know, nobody really needs to work anymore, truly. So, you know, and and but yeah. instead of restructuring society in a way that makes sense, which I think a lot of people have that impulse, um, it just turns into, I love your phrase, moon, moonshot boondoggles. That, <laughs> that is hilarious. You know, it's like, and, and the classic example is, is Elon Musk just coming up with stuff that he never delivers on. Like the, uh, the alleged robot that was just somebody in a spandex uh, costume that he brought out. Um, is that true? Was that what it was? Yeah, it was just a person in in, in spandex. And he said, uh, you know, the robot's going to kind of look like this. But it was just uh. somebody <laughs> interpretive dancing in spandex. Um, or it becomes a more more sinisterly, it's, it becomes a more effective way to, to do capitalism or to rip people off. And I, I think, unfortunately, the classic example is blockchain, which I was very you know, interested in at first is like, this is great. This is decentralized. It came out of Occupy. It's a way to mm -hmm. get away from the banking system. But just like, you know, dot coms in a way, it just becomes a way to more effectively rip people off. It's like the thing that's being uh, uh, hidden by cryptography is not you. It's the people taking your money. Yeah. I mean, my most optimistic take on crypto now is that the first thing you see in any new medium is the previous medium becomes the content of the new medium. That's what McLuhan talked about a lot. So it's like you get early television and it was stage plays, you know, done on TV, like the honeymooners or something. And then slowly, but surely you start to see some other stuff, you know, something more native to the medium. So the first thing we did on crypto was capitalism, right? Was tokens that you yeah. raise money on. And maybe, you know, now that we've lived through that, we can then start making, and there's, I know a lot of people, cool people who are trying to do other stuff. You know, I don't know how much faith I have that it will work, but they're, they're, they've seen through capitalism and they are looking at creating some more sustainable uh, possibilities. That's my hope. And, and it always has been my hope. And that's why I was, you know, um, talking, talking it up like five years ago. But, um, I will say there's a lot of it's funny that I'm saying this, but like, you know, but, but maybe not because me being who I am, I have a very highly tuned antenna for delusional magical thinking. Oh, good. Right. And there's a lot of delusional magical thinking in the crypto world. I mean, even people like, uh, Brock, uh, Pierce, the guy that did, uh, EOS proclaiming himself a shaman. And, you know, you get these people having just total delusional power fantasies that they're going to reinvent the entire world on the blockchain. And as long as it's on the blockchain, it will somehow magically work. And right now is a bit of a darker moment in that timeline, wherever that's going to go. The NFT thing didn't really go anywhere. Um, and we'll see, I mean, the, 
premises somehow it will all work out in the end but uh i don't know it's funny the the amazing thing about the crypto people is well not maybe the amazing thing the the limiting thing about the crypto people uh many of them is that they're looking to create a program that takes care of everything in other words all right so we're going to do a crypto that embeds governance and prevents cheating and makes sure you know that that somehow they can account for everything with the blockchain and then let it go and run society and what they don't get just like the stochastics people didn't get is that things are going to happen that you didn't program into it you know shit's going to happen there's going to be drift of one kind yeah. or another and what they would argue is well then when those moments happen we're all going to get together and then everyone can vote on how to change the program yes. to do the blah 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 other thing which has so never worked before but yeah Right. And that was, you know, that's the joke of Ethereum is that they say, oh, Ethereum is this. It's all fine. It's all this. It's like, yeah, except when enough people who are important in the Ethereum universe decide something, they fork the whole. Right. Right. Yeah. They just exercise central control on it. Right. And, you know, so it's like, okay, we're not going to use proof of work anymore because that's bad and uses up the planet. Instead, we're going to use something called proof of stake. Well, what's that? Well, it means the people who have the most coin decide on what happens with the coin because they have the most at stake. That's where we are now. The right. richest people make all the decisions right. on behalf of the rest of us that help the richest people. Right. So it's like, wait a minute, what did you just do? You just reified global corporate banking capitalism on a now even less accessible, uh, uh, a more obscure uh, uh, set of platforms. The even more insidious thing about that, even with Ethereum, it's like, you know, in order to stake something, you pretty much have to turn over control of it to a central authority and you can't access it anymore. It's like basically putting in a, putting it in a CD that you can't get at. And then if the thing gets hacked or the exchange goes down, like all these exchanges are going down right now, then all your money's gone. Everything that you stake to supposedly have control over the thing, you just lose. And that's happened right. to me several times, you know, so, so, uh, I know. And yeah. that's where they tell you, oh, well, you should have kept your own wallet. Yeah. Well, well then I can keep gold bricks. Then you can't stake it. Too. You can't stake it if it's in your own wallet, you know? Right. So yeah, exactly. So hopefully these things get, uh, I'm just, hopefully these things get worked out. I mean, I, I do think that it is, um, obviously a fascinating technology, but I do think that it's interesting that we're having this conversation, uh, the week of Silicon Valley bank collapsing. Right. And I I wonder what your thoughts are on that. And particularly reading this book that, you know, that was in the forefront of my mind, which is just like how many of these kind of like delusional TED talk, I'm going to save the world ideas are just going to get taken out. And it's like that Warren Buffett thing. It's like, you know, when the tide goes out, you see who's wearing a swimsuit. Yeah. It's so funny because I got to do um, South by Southwest on last Saturday. So it was the day after Silicon Valley Bank crashed, but two days before Biden said he's going to bail it out. And I'm doing this talk called um, The End of the Billionaire Mindset, A Celebration. Right. So 
It was kind of perfect timing. Um, and I didn't mean it as, what do they call it, schadenfreude or mm -hmm. something, where you laugh at the bad. But it was, I originally meant it as like, this is the end of my book tour. And I'm going to basically declare that we have success between my book and other things that have gone on in the world. We've successfully exposed the billionaire mindset for what it is. And most people no longer want to emulate Elon Musk and Peter Thiel. They see it now as a, as a sickness. Hopefully than no one ever wanted to emulate Peter Thiel, but yeah. Oh, I think they did. No, I think no. they did. Um, but they certainly wanted the money or something. I don't know. They still saw that as the way out. And I think the the billionaire mindset is fading. But Sam Bankman Freed and effective altruism and all those things have been kind of revealed as, oh, these guys are these are fucked up children. Yeah, they left college yeah. when they're just freshmen. That's why they don't understand. They 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 transferred parental authority onto VCs and and mm, what do you think was going to happen to a little little Mark Zuckerberg, poor little thing. You know, he should be in the, the, the school for gifted and talented children, not mm. um, you know, at, at, at Sequoia or or Peter Thiel's Capital Founders Fund or whatever it is that gave him his money. Poor thing. Um, cause he's gifted. He's a gifted child. Um, he's just not, you know, Augustus Caesar, you know, right, <laughs> he shouldn't right. be, right? but he wants to be, but the, 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 that, that Ted talk singular vision of, you know, I've seen the light and this is the technology and this is the thing that one I think is kind of over. I'm hoping Hmm. That it's kind of over and that this this new crash, you know, you want it to be as gentle as possible. But, you know, I've been through two others. You know, I remember in, in 1999, I was the guy they called to write the uh, New York Times op-ed on the AOL Time Warner merger. And I said, I wrote in this piece, this is the beginning of the end. This means the dot-com boom is about to bust because Steve Case, the owner of AOL, is cashing in his chips to buy a real media company like Time Warner. The New York Times said, we can't publish this. This is crazy. Everyone in the business section says you are insane to say such a thing. This is the merger of old media and new and the beginning of the... It's like, all right. I mean, of course I was right. you know. And I spoke at South By in like 98, 99, right around then saying, this is going to crash. And people laughed at me. And even Bruce Sterling, I think, said I was being nuts. Okay. You know, we're a new paradigm and all. And yeah, we fucking crashed. Then I was back there in 2006 or seven saying, you know, there's people in Park Slope. That's my Park Slope story. There's people in Park Slope who, after I got mugged, were angry that I posted the block that it happened on because they were scared their property value was going to go down. And this was not because they were selling their property, but because in order to stay in their homes, they needed their property value to go up so they could refinance their mortgages at better valuations. Mm -hmm. that, that was the way that they stayed at home, right, was earning off the increasing value. And that was doomed to fail. You can't depend on a commodity going up in order to stay in a house. And I announced that then, and then, of course, that happened. And now I'm at South by again, doing another keynote the day that the friggin' bank goes under. And I'm like, oh, my God, here we go again. This is, this is it again. But again, it's not time to be upset. It's time to celebrate. We have another window of opportunity to reclaim these technologies for human and and human and and interspecies flourishing rather than um, self sovereignty and personal wealth. You know, this is this is our moment. And so I think it's I think this is actually a good moment, you know, and it's interesting that it's coming at the same time that AI chat GPT four mm. is coming out, yep. you know, and, and I'm so interested to see if people respond to it 
um, with the with the fear that that poor little Tristan Harris is bringing to it with his new announcement. Now it's not the social dilemma; it's the AI dilemma, and this is the greatest threat to humanity ever. Or can we see these as the glorified? search engines they really are right you know? right right i think that's well that's well put that's a much better way to look at it it's interesting um you're i mean hopefully a maturing comes out of that and it's interesting you kind of talk about you know mark zuckerberg or people like this is you know essentially not having enough emotional maturity or not having been properly parented almost mm. and one of the it made me think earlier we were talking about magical thinking and messianic thinking among tech people and comparing it to magic. And you said that part of that is the set and setting of capitalism and finance and they get these dominator ideas. But I think one of the other things is that produces these kind of ludicrous um, ideas or, you know, dominator ideas. It's just lack of experience. You know, you get people who are taking psychedelics their first time and you put out, put in your book, you know, 30 minutes later, they're, outlining their plan for world domination uh, or salvation. And it's just like, you, you just don't have enough experience. And one of the great things about magic as a literally magic as a, you know, whatever it is, a metaphor, a life path is you go through all these stages of trial and error and maturation. You get to go through the phase of like, I'm the great wizard and I have the power. And then you get knocked, knocked the hell down by the universe. And then you have the, the phase of like, well, maybe if I come and I act altru, you know, I'm altruistic and I try to help and save everyone. It's like, no, you get knocked down by the universe. And finally you kind of settle into just being yourself and hopefully providing something good for other people. And the people who just have, uh, are just going into the psychedelics for the first time and th thinking they have it, they don't have that experience. Um, and they end up, the phrase I came up with as I was reading this is bong think at scale is kind of yeah. what is coming out of this. You know, it's like they're exactly. having all these, these same ideas that I had just getting high in my dorm room in Santa Cruz. Like, hey man, like, wouldn't it be great if like all the world leaders could get together and do acid? on the blockchain, you know, it's like, no, that's supposed to be an idea that you pass over. You're not supposed to throw money yeah. at that, you know? <laughs> no, that's supposed to happen on the bunk stained rug in your Santa Cruz or Reed College or wherever, you know, uh, uh, what's it doing here? New Paltz, you know, Bard. There's schools specifically for that even, you know, <laughs> and it's you, you pass through, it's a beautiful thing. I went through it myself. And then you get to the right section of the bookstore, you know, then, you know, then you find your Leary and your Burroughs or your ideally your Robert Anton Wilson. And you find out, okay, who's gone here before? What did they learn? Or your John D for God's sake, or your Manly P Hall or your, you know, uh, Gurdjieff or, or Krishnamurti. I mean, it's like the thing I love about Krishnamurti, he's like, read anything. <laughs> Right. Yeah. No, I love that. No, totally. Yeah. No, I always, it's all good. I always tell people, it's like, if you want to learn magic, the number one thing I advise is stay the hell away from occult books, you know, just like Some pay ways, attention yeah. to your experience. And, and also I think reading biographies of people who have been successful at life is really important. And you'll yeah. always find something mystic in there, oddly enough. But, but I, reality, I think reality had some, some natural occurring um, uh, 
obstacles to initiation hmm. that really helped. So, I mean, so Charles Bukowski, this beat poet, was very influential on me. And the way I found Bukowski was there was a kid in high school who had a William Burroughs book. I think it was um, it was Naked Lunch, maybe, or one of those, you know, regular, popular. But for, at high school in the 70s, there wasn't that much of that. He has this book. I'm like, dude, what is that? It's got the word fuck in it. Oh, my God. And it looks so cool. And he goes, oh, I got it at this store called St. Mark's Books down in Greenwich Village. It's not on the regular shelf. You got to go to the guy at the counter and he'll take you to this special shelf with like books that you're not supposed to see. And it's like, what do you mean? That's what it's just, just, you'll trust me. So I go there and I go to the store and I go, dude, William Burroughs. And he's like, he gives me this smile. You know, like the comic shop guy who knows when you say R. Crumb and he's like, oh, okay, <laughs> kid, come on. You know, or, or uh, uh, you know, one of those, one of those dudes. Um, and he takes me back to this. It's almost like the pornographic section of the bookstore. He takes me there and there's this shelf of all these like beat poets and things. And I find the Burroughs and then next to Burroughs is Bukowski. And I'm like, what's that? And he's like, oh, check it out. It's this thing called Black Sparrow Press. And they have a bunch of these strange poets, you know, you might want to. And I look at this and I get this book and it's got like a short story about this guy who gets falls in love with this witch and she shrinks him down to the size of a dildo and uses his whole body as a dildo in living her. the dream. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, and I'm like, and I'm like, Oh my God. And my little, you know, 17 year old brain is just blown by this stuff. And then I go back and then discover after Burroughs. And it's like, I go back to Burroughs and then Geisen who's yeah. this Brian Geisen guy and cut up and that, and then from cut up, um, they say that there's some music involved with this. And I go to Bleaker Bob and what's this stuff and Geisen and cut up. And he goes, Oh, you know, you mean throbbing gristle, I think. Right. And then you go to that and you get this. What is this? What is this? It's like, there's an address and a thing. If you email it and then Genesis sends you back a Xerox of Topi and you're like, Oh my God, what's that? So, but that's like two years of effort. Yeah. Right. Of and on each. So you listen to this record 300 times between the time that you get it and you get the next stage. Now, tech bro even doesn't even tells his assistant to go on Google and it's what everything is one level of depth away. There's no path anymore. It's all so immediate. So there's no and there's no people. It's like now it's like every magician I know of is sort of like Dr. Faustus or something. They're alone in their gorgeous fucking man mm. cave VR paradise. Where's your coven? Where's your posse? Mm. Who are your compatriots? Who are you learning with? Who are yeah. you discussing this with? They're not. They're they're doing it, you know, by themselves yeah. or with their, you know, with their with their paid uh, uh assistants and prostitutes. And it's like, huh. no, I'm sorry. This is not um these are collective journeys. I think interesting. Yeah, I mean, there is a solo wizard thing. I guess some of magic does happen alone. You know, like I imagine Mark Pesci alone, naked in his apartment. You know, doing rituals to the winds or whatever. But I want. I I would want a a, a puja, a, a a group, a, a coven. A yeah. No, that's interesting. I mean, I've done it both ways, and I've been a part of a lot of groups, and now I'm more uh solo although i say like i think the best working relationship is like one other person 
whether mm. that's like your partner, partner, or a, a trusted friend. That's how John D and, D and Kelly were. That's how Burroughs and Geisen were. That's how Parsons mm -hmm. and L. Ron Hubbard were, or Crowley and Neuberg. I think like two people is a good is a good one. I mean, groups are great. I mean, groups have all all their own problems, obviously. Right. Now, they turn into cults and this and that. Yeah. But I guess it's just it's such a solo, a solo ego gratifying quest for power. That kind of Tony Robbins est self actualized thing, and that's such a. a not just a dangerous path, but uh, uh, it's a it's a destructive path for those around you. You know, so you look at say Trumpian magic. I'm sure you've done a bunch of podcasts on. Bunch it, of, you know, you're gonna say, I'm sure you've done a bunch of Trumpian magic. I'm like, oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the Trumpian magic yeah. is that you know, think and grow rich style magic as uh, uh, self, not just self realization and actualization, but self. Uh, 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 feeding or wealth, wealth building. And it's like not, it's sort of a shame it went that way. And I know there's a few people, Mitch Horowitz, one of them is trying to sort of recover magic from the prosperity movement, mm. you know, which is, again, it's magic, magic under capitalism, like anything under what's, I guess that's finally my question to you. And then I'm still not sure of what, what is stronger magic or capitalism, you know? <laughs> well, one thing to point out that I was thinking about when I was reading your book is, is the, the re symbolic relation. I mean, Western, I mean, you know, it's like with magic, you got to define, is it Western magic? I mean, that's something that's mm -hmm. a product of the Renaissance, just like capitalism. And it comes from the same, it comes from the Italian city States at the same period of, of time. And one of the things that I was thinking about, but of course that's not the same as, herbs or witchcraft or women's magic or, you know, tribal magic or indigenous or African. I mean, there's so many things out there, but, uh, um, right. but you read your book, go read your book on John D and you realize, Oh, wait a minute. This is all fucking political. Oh, this yeah. is empire building. This is, you know, it, it not, to, it's like you start to see the musky and Peter Thiele and Trumpian qualities of it, that it's like, it's so tempting. If you're friends with the queen, I mean, what else are you going to do? Right. But, but then you look, it's like, okay, where, where's Prince Andrew and Harry and Megan and who are they or, talking or, to? They're or all Jeffrey in Epstein. Right. They're yeah. in that either in the Epstein crowd with Andrew or they're in the sort of um, meta modern crowd is where Harry and Megan are going into sort of the sense making. They know, you know, the 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 that and they're magicians of a sort, you know, Schmachtenberg and the conciliance and that, you know, have overlaps with Tristan and and Harry and Megan. And they're they're all moving in. As Genesis would have told us, of course, the royals are involved deeply in mm. magic, whether they know it or not. Yeah. Well, yeah, always disturbing, particularly the the uh, Jeffrey Epstein. And what was that other guy's name? The children's presenter in England um, that died. What the hell was that guy's name? Do you know who I'm talking know, about? Like he was like the, turned out to be a, a necrophiliac procurer uh, for the royals, and he was like the like the the kids' TV presenter in England for thirty years. What oh the hell was God, that guy's no, name? I've got to look remember. him up. But uh, you know, Epstein's interesting. So was Epstein? You know, and you look at the plans for his temples in New Mexico yeah, and on hell? his island. Yeah, what the and hell? And it's like. <laughs> Was he a cultist or was he mock occultist? You know, was it occult design? Because he was basically a eugenicist. 
right? Supporting any scientist that argued that human beings are nothing more than their genes. So you can abuse them however you want, as long as you spread your own. You know, that was why he got along with, you know, Dawkins and Pinker and Dennett and one of those guys flying around in his airplane. You know, they they didn't realize how easily, I, I think their innocence on a certain level, they didn't realize how easily their um, uh, staunch scientific atheism dovetailed with this, you know, very dark eugenics, um, uh, uh, eugenicist understanding of technology and human worth. Yeah, and it's interesting you say in the book, it's kind of like you almost like take Epstein as a, it's like this is a model. Like this is, this guy's modeling where all this goes. That was very disturbing for me. Yeah. And you kind of look at him and it's like, yeah, I've thought about this a lot. You know, he's got like that crazy temple on his island and all that. And it's like, you know, it's like there's, I think there's just a certain level where it's just grim uh, it's just control in the sense of, you know, it's set in setting. It's the sense it's, you're putting people in, in an environment where you're telling them that you have power over them and you have control over them. And, it's, and that is a form of, you know, quote unquote magic, but it's all about, uh, psychological manipulation. It's not, I don't know, right. you know, it's, it's literally just trying to, you know, scare people or put them in, or it seems like with him putting people in a, a set in setting where there's kind of suspended reality so that they would do things that he got could get on videotape to blackmail them with, particularly with substances and things like that. Right. And it's the same thing that we do with technology, right? You get them into web three or onto a blockchain or into a metaverse or into virtual reality or to get people to do things or search for things or look for things that compromise them that you can then use against them later, either specifically to out them from the left to, to manipulate, them from the right or simply to uh, uh, model them from a digital perspective and, you know, pace and lead as, as any yeah. good neurolinguistic programmer knows how to do. Yeah. It occurred to me a while ago that it seems like the number one, um, if you're going to do threat modeling on the internet, the number one thing that makes people vulnerable on the internet is maintaining a fixed identity, which of course is what right. everyone does because they want to build a personal brand on Twitter. But it's like, if you have a fixed identity, you're targetable both by advertisers yeah. or canceling things like that. But you look at the effect on the world that anonymous people from 4chan had with no identity. And I think there's a magical lesson there. It's like your identity is actually the thing that makes you vulnerable rather than protects you from the world. Yeah, that is interesting um, because uh, it was the original on the original net. The whole point of it was, well, not the whole point, but one of the great points of it was that you could be anybody. I'm a dog. I'm a girl. I'm an obese Asian, you know, transvestite today. I'm anything. And it was a play space and there was no, really no genuinely negative consequences for living in various forms of drag. And I remember the moment that I saw, um, I actually met with them right before they did it when Citibank wanted to go online. Citibank was so immature in their understanding of what the internet was when they decided to go online that and there were so few of us who know about the internet in this like 89, 90, you know, and it wasn't even the net. Um, they called me in and asked if I was interested in the job of being uh, the, the, the head of global internet for Citibank. That sounds like a well-paid job. 
Yeah, it was going to be like $400,000 or something like that, some crazy amount of money. And I remember talking to my mother, maybe it was $270,000. It was something just absurd. Um, and in 1990s dollars, even more absurd. I remember my mom saying, well, you could just do it for two or three years and be a millionaire and then quit and do theater like you want. And I said, yeah, or I could do it for two or three years, then quit and walk out and get hit by a bus. You know, it's like, <laughs> I don't want to start or I'll meet a woman, you know, who likes me as that income and then <laughs> yes, <laughs> she doesn't yeah, want dangerous. Me anymore, yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah. Because I'll be that person. Um, but the the thing was, I remember when they were talking about it and I did this meeting with them and I said, don't go on the internet. That's crazy. I mean, at the time, because the internet for me was so anchored as this weird magical play space of, of mutable identity. And I understood how the net worked. And I was saying to them, look, you realize every single computer on the net is saying, hi, my name's Douglas. What's yours? Do you have something for me? I have something for you. It's like every computer is so promiscuous saying, please come inside me, <laughs> share with me, do something to me, right? It's like, that was what the net was. It's like, you're going to put a bank on there. We're going to have to lock down the net. We're going to have to make it serious. It's going to matter who we are. We're going to have to verify our identity. Everything's going to get, this is a bad trip. It's like, what do you want to do when you're basically, what do you want to do when you're tripping? Do you want to pretend you're a dog or do you want to balance your checkbook? You know, it's like, I don't want to balance my checkbook when I'm tripping. That's a bad, well, for most of us, a bad trip, right? Bad trip. <laughs> but that's what they basically wanted to do. And I saw the internet as an essentially psychedelic space. It felt like being on psychedelics, being out on the net. And honestly, it's still like being on psychedelics. And that's, you know, another main point of this whole survival of the richest thing was the original set and setting of the internet was... The, the unbridled potential of the human imagination was creativity and chaos. And the, the, the wired magazine, uh, uh, a digital investor sensibility is, uh, uh, control surveillance, paranoia and extraction. Yeah. So if you're going to take psychedelics with paranoia, control, extraction, domination as your set and setting, what do you think you're going to get? Right. And here we are 40 years later, we've been living on an essentially psychedelic substrate for the last 40 years with a set and setting of paranoia and control. No wonder we're having a bad trip. No wonder we elect yeah. Donald Trump. No yeah. wonder we're freaked out. I mean, duh, this is just look around. This is bad trip. This is I, I can't think of a of a of a more uh, exact description for what certainly America is experiencing than bad trip. Yeah, I'm sure you know the um, the Crowley thing about black black brotherhood, the black brothers. No. Oh, so the black brothers are there are um, it's a it's a crisis point in the magical trip. Um, where you get to the edge of the abyss where you're supposed to surrender your identity and merge with the universe and become one with everything, but you refuse to. And then you basically become this vampiric, you're cut off from the universe and become this like vampiric shut in. You create a castle. The image is, you know, the black brothers dwelling in their lonely towers. And it's kind of similar to what you were just describing or this book where you're just this mm. totally paranoid, afraid, unable to let go, unable to enjoy existence because you're terrified of letting go of your individual ego. You don't want to That's do it. Beautiful. And on the other side of That's that is the whole universe, but and you forget the whole universe is yours. You're part of it, but instead you want to like shut down and basically do what you're describing in this, uh, in this book. 
that's the moment in in Torah when you know Moses keeps going to God, let my people go, let the people go, and Pharaoh keeps trying to hold on to them, mm. and finally God hardens Pharaoh's heart, right? And it's this weird line, and all these you know rabbis are always arguing, what do they mean? What do they mean? Mm. And you know what they really mean, I think, is that God took away Pharaoh's free will. He hardened his heart. He turned Pharaoh basically into an AI. He became you know one of your black brothers because he couldn't. He could let, just let them go. Open up. You did it. You're yeah. there. You win. You win. And he couldn't, um, couldn't smash his own idols, you know, couldn't, couldn't get out of his own way. And that, that's of course what produces bad trips too. You, you, you don't let go and you're clinging on and you have muscular tension and you won't, you won't relax into the trip. That's what, you know. Um, right. I know. That's why Leary would always say, you know, like if somebody says to you, oh, no, I'm having a bad trip. Why? Oh, I'm turning into a robot. And Tim said he would just go, well, robot. Oh, so you're all, we're all robots. It is, you know, <laughs> and that's funny. Act like a robot. And you just kind of go with it. And it's like, oh, this is fun. Let's dance the robot. That's funny. Right? It's interesting you bring up Pharaoh, too, because I was thinking uh, one of the things I kept thinking about when you were um, or when I was reading this book. There you go. Is. um how much some of these people sound like Egyptian pharaohs. You know, like Burroughs talked about this in the Western land. It's like you have these people who are so terrified of death. They're trying to live forever with all this magic of becoming mummies and things like that. And they're building these, uh, although this may not be, you know, archaeological valid anymore, but the story is they're building these pyramids to take everything with them into the Western lands. And they have all their slaves killed to go with them. And they have all their possessions and they light their horses on fire or whatever and all this stuff. And it's just like, no, just let go. Like, this is ridiculous. But it's hard not to see that in somebody like Jeff Bezos or some of these guys where they're they're uh, And a lot of them are trying to overcome death, you know, the, the human. Well, they literally overcome. Yeah, literally, they mean it yeah. actually yeah. And, and consciously. Yeah. I mean, I mean, specifically and explicitly, right? They're going to upload, Sam Altman's going to upload his consciousness to a thing, a Ray Kurzweil wants to beat death. Or they do it the other way with nutrients and, you know, vampire blood and genetic re-engineering. Re and, you know, they've got the Institute of Noetic Sciences on Gate Road next to where Whole Earth used to be is about that. It's all life extension. And where'd they get that? They got that from the Russian cosmists at those great two-track diplomacy meetings they did at Esalen in the 1970s. It was funny. They were set up originally because it was like, oh, Russia. It's like uh, Reagan and Gorbachev were meeting about nuclear bombs and stuff and those those famous meetings. So Esalen set up the second track. They called it two-track diplomacy at, at Esalen, the hot tubs in Big Sur. And they invited like the scientists and spiritualists of Russia to meet with the scientists and spiritualists of the U.S. So you had like John Lilly and uh, the and the early Apple guys and investors and, you know, Edgar Mitchell and, um, you know, Gene Houston or whoever with the Russian cosmists who were like the Russian spiritualists and technologists. And it was the Russians who brought the idea of life extension technology to them. It was the Russians who were swimming with the dolphins. Weren't originally they, weren't, doing they, e weren't they the early smart drug people also? Yes. Yeah. And the early smart drug, but that's where Lily got the idea to like start swimming with dolphins and do dolphin telepathy was from those, those meetings. Yeah. Wow. And, and, and they were the ones who said, oh, we could upload human consciousness into a robot someday. And that was where those ideas then came to our tech bros as upload consciousness and life extension and all that. That's so really funny when you say that, thinking of that uploading your consciousness into a robot with the, like in the context of this like kind of like grim communist art, you know, <laughs> from that period. <laughs> 
Yeah. But, you know, it's the reason it was the cosmists and not our kind of Christians is because, you know, Russian Orthodoxy has a much more kind of uh, literal understanding of when the soul leaves the body and goes up into the sky. It's like a whole different, what do they call that? Uh, uh, the, your, your Transubstantiation or something like yeah, that. that. Yeah, that stuff. Yeah. They've got a, a different model of it than, mm-hmm. than uh, you know, uh, regular American Protestants. So it was a... Uh, it was interesting because their new age movement, their, their new age sciency movement moved into a, a more literal understanding of um, life extension. Do you, where, where is that out at now? Do you have a sense of that on, on, in Russia? I don't know where it's at. And I'm sure it's probably gone because they went capitalist there. I don't know if there are many Russian cosmists left. There's a couple of books on cosmism, but they're pretty historical. I mean, I would say state of the art cosmism is Sam Altman, you mm-hmm. know, is Ray Kurzweil. You know, I think we caught the we cut the bug. Well, it's interesting. You know, we're talking about South by Southwest, South by Southwest, and uh, I was looking at it, and um, they have the psychedelics track this year, where there's all like the talks on psychedelics, and it's just like so bizarre to look at. It's like, I mean, I guess it's not a surprise at all because you have like the Tim Ferrises and things like this, but it's like, yeah, what, you know, what is going to come know. out of this? They think right? of psychedelics as human engineering technologies, right? This specific molecule does that, and this one does that. And it's also South by Southwest is a business, and they want to include each of the things, so they add a track when there's something else going on. So well, that shows there's so it. much demand for it, though. Right, there is. There is, but it's also the big patent area. You know, mm-hmm. Peter Thiel, he doesn't want people taking mushrooms. He wants to patent an analog molecule to psilocybin that then they can make money off of. That's depressing. That's the object of the game. Yeah, it's like, I, I wonder what's going to come out of that. I mean, I, I read... Um, I forget what the title of the article was, but there was a, an article, I think, in the LA Times about a, a year ago that was talking about the rebirth of psychedelics in Los Angeles, right after I left, of course. Great timing. But, um, and they were talking about like it's big business now, and there's all these rich people like going and like, you know, Land Rovers to do psychedelics in, in uh, you know, on the West Side in Santa Monica and things like this. And they're, they're interviewing this, you know, quote unquote shaman, and he's saying like, Yes, there are metrics for what we can do in this space. And I was just like, oh, Lord, Lord, why? Why? Uh, why has it come to this? <laughs> it's just like metrics. there's metrics for what we can achieve in psych- while tripping in psychedelic space. Now, that is truly blood curdling for me. Yeah. And, you know, for me, there's also, um, and maybe this is superstitious, but I always felt that a guy like Crowley, you know, takes these journeys into ethereal realms and by writing about what he sees the way he sees it he kind of he's not just mapping the terrain but labeling it for us so then when we go and see those things we think of them like that in other words he's Mm -hmm. constructing the reality as much as he's just observing it so when terence mckenna says oh i saw the machine elves He's created a metaphor for something that may or may not be fucking Man, machine I've elves. never seen the fucking machine elves. Are they right. real? I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, well, maybe. But there's something, right? But you you label so you you like and 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 Crowley was also one of the last great English explorers, you know, where you go to the mountaintops and you climb and you so he's moving through those realms and writing about what he sees and as much defining them as um as as uh uh mapping them. But when these guys, when when tech bros then go out into these realms that they're finding, they're labeling them 
their ways, you know, as, as, and that's the part that's weird. So I don't, I don't, because they're colonizing these spaces as they go to them and they're labeling them in an effort to colonize them and then, um, uh, uh, influence how we experience those things. So I don't like them creating the frame around these spaces and chemicals. And I don't like them being the loud ones. You know, I, 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 I'm still surprised that an Eric Schmidt can go do ayahuasca or something and come back and still just want to use AI to control the human population and work with us government to disperse the billions of dollars on this shit. I mean, I I'm amazed that these guys could have, what I imagine are psychedelic experiences even more intense and better shamanized than my own, you know, with higher paid shaman and better versions of the street drugs that I've used um, and come back just as, just as capitalist and government-y and, you know, whatever they are, but, uh, but they do, you know, they do. So it's, I just think it's important that we create our own maps and in some ways don't, don't, let their um not like they can ingrain them like with some morphogenetic permanent indelible you know el marco resonance that we can't change later yeah but- i think that's a real thing not not even just linguistically but like felt you know like i've had experiences doing acid where i'm like this feels gross and strip mined now mm-hmm. you know it's like there's too many consciousnesses here it's been colonized and uh maybe i'm just imagining it but I think it's a real, it's a real thing. People leave their taint on that space. They might, you know, they really might, you know, that's why I can understand why people want to use mushrooms or ayahuasca because they have, you know, greater histories and morphogenetic resonance of Aboriginal people using it, you know, whereas acid is so new and frequent, uh, so new and frequently used by maybe assholes from the West that it's gotten that, that imprint that acid has become, a little bit more cocaine-like, yeah. If you will, <laughs> it feels. It, it, it. I barely ever do it, but when I do, it often feels very sleazy, like that kind of like cigarettes in a Las Vegas lobby type, uh, type feeling. Right, but, but you know, not to not to undermine it though, because I, I, personally, it's still my very favorite experiences okay. were LSD experience. There's something. The thing for me, because I had, I don't know, I had maybe had an overbearing mother and I was always worried about everybody else and other experiences and stuff and, and other people's experience of whatever I'm going through in that moment. What do I owe? What do I owe? What's my obligation? That plant chemicals, plant plant medicines, I'm aware of that they have an agenda too. You know, so it's like ayahuasca. Okay, okay, we're destroying the planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The ecosystems are a little fun. Okay, <laughs> mushrooms. All right, you know. All right, the ground, the earth, the thing, the planet, the thing. Okay, yeah, yeah. Women. And all right, yeah. I get it. So it's like it's like maybe it's more like you know, acid is like masturbation, and and uh, uh, mushrooms are more like an encounter with another being. But something about LSD was like it, it. And not like I can't have a bad trip or anything, but acid asks nothing of me other than look in the fucking mirror, look in this water, just be. And the the plants have seem seem to want to be like, yeah, Doug, but you need to look at this. Or, yeah. 
I agree. I mean, even just marijuana is like that, but I think it um, is. Yeah, marijuana no, is sure. a mistress of a sort. I yeah. mean, at least for for me as a as a cis male, whatever I am, as a, you know, uh, I'll call it mistress because that's my my obvious sexual partner thing. You know, what I feel like I owe something to the is the woman side. But yeah, marijuana is like this weird kind of perpetual girlfriend, and it's like if I don't smoke for like if I forget to smoke for a year or something, and you smoke again, she's like. Where the fuck were you? Where the <laughs> fuck were you, buddy? You know, and, and you know what I mean? Or like you do too much and she's like, get out of here. Just that's funny. What are you bothering me? What are you bothering me for? You- <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I have found acid. The interesting thing about acid as opposed to plant drugs is it is programmable. It just kind of seems for right. me to rip off the it just kind of exposes the controls. And that for me yes. is where the technology of magic with correspondences and things like that it mm-hmm. comes in you know that that really dovetails so well with that because that's how you program it right but is there something you've taken and then seen beings uh a lot of things <laughs> 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 let me think of and you've seen beings without taking anything too oh uh, so. uh, yeah yeah uh i mean i've done taken dm somebody i met let me specify yeah. somebody i met uh you know, DMT, there's definitely entities. I've just never, they've never appeared as machine elves to me. Uh, mushrooms, particularly mushrooms with um, MAO inhibitors, which I highly recommend nobody do because I've never had a worse trip. Um, but MDA is the one that I've actually seen beings in the room. And that was fucking weird because it was like, instead of a hallucination, it was like literally seeing something in the room with you. Wow. Yeah, that was weird. Um, and that was actually during the disinfo days. I got, uh, there was this kid, uh, I should have mentioned his name. He was an intern for disinfo. They had this like bad street MDA and, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, and I, you know, usually it's more of a scent of, you know, without drugs, it's more of a feeling of sensed presence rather than anything else. But, you know, I've got tons of those experiences. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting how, I mean, I remember from that era, late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s, so much of um, tech, psychedelics, rave was about making contact. You know, where people really wanted to find the UFO or the interdimensional being or the, you know, there, there was something, someone, someone else. And now it feels this is more characterized by the, the, it looks more Bezos-like. It's the individual alone in their rocket ship, you know, venturing out into... Their very oddly shaped rocket ship. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in not subtle at all. Penis. Yeah. Uh, one thing Jen said to me way back when was, in, in relation to that, was, you know, it's like all these people are taking DMT, like, thinking they're seeing this other realm. It's like, but they never consider, well, they can see you also. And every time you make one of these little pinholes to the other side, it's another pinhole that they have to look back here. Right. Whoever they are, you know, which is always, was always the question with Jen. It's like, who is they? You keep saying they are doing this, that, and the other. Like, who do you mean? I know. I always said by they, he meant originally, like he meant like Prince Albert and the occult, you know. Yeah, the queen. Family yeah. or something, the England royal family. Because he used to talk about them a lot, like having secret rituals under Buckingham Palace where they have... Hundreds of children. Yeah, which turned out to be real. That's, I can't, what's the guy's name? Oh, Jimmy Savile was the guy in, in England who was the kids presenter. But he was like, he was like wearing Crowleyan paraphernalia and occult stuff. And he was procuring, like, he was going out and killing kids with, um, 
uh, this other serial killer, and he was procuring for Prince Andrew and the rest of the royal family. And it's just the I English know. are weird. Another scandal the weird. that they they have covered that scandal in the eighties about um, that you know it was a Buckingham Palace or the, the the House of Lords did have an underage sex ring that was associated with them, and it's like so. You know, not the QAnon is right, but QAnon is right. I mean, <laughs> so that, yeah, that, yeah, you, you talk about QAnon in this book and it's kind of like, that's a, that was kind of like a queasy section for me, not because of what yeah. you're talking about, but just because of reality where it's like, okay, so now all of a sudden all these, you know, the realm of conspiracy theories is basically taken away from the cool people and is now, but distorted. And it's like, now you have people saying, well, they're drinking adrenochrome and like all this stuff. And it's like, this is obviously on the face of it. Let's just call it hallucinatory and exaggerated, but it's not like Jeffrey Epstein isn't, didn't happen, you know, but it's just like, but now it all, you know, to have this QAnon thing also certainly I think serves people in power because now we're Alex Jones. It's like now, well, that's just like QAnon. It's, it's, it's certainly as grandma would say, it's not good for the Jews that it's friggin' Jeffrey Epstein, you know? Mm. I mean, <laughs> most of the people on the list aren't Jews, but um, it does. It certainly doesn't help when you're when you're basically getting an updated version of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, Ooh, yeah. uh, you know, rumor that was started by the czar, you know, a czarist policeman in when in the 1800s. Mm. Um, it it doesn't help to to see it uh, aspects of it be true but the fact is people do abuse kids there are porn rings it's like that's all real it doesn't mean it's uh you know what QAnon would want to believe you know a zionist conspiracy mm. of power it's something you know a lot in some more. ways it's worse yeah. and and it's that's the disturbing thing about human trafficking too it could be right next door to you and you wouldn't know um and yeah yeah but then you have like you know but it's like but also it's like, you know, in the English, the English crown, like Jimmy Savile, people like this, it's like, this stuff is happening. And a lot of that was coming out and it wasn't any one group of people, unless it's just people with power and money. And, you know, yeah. and then this is just the whole QAnon thing happened. And the other thing that became kind of queasy for me was, you know, you talk, you address the great reset and it's like, okay, well, this will be interesting because now that's becoming, you know, that exists that's real, but it's also become this kind of right wing talking point. And, yeah. you know, this thing fixated on by, you know, schizophrenic people and, you know, but it is real. So I don't know what your take on that is. It's real, but it's not what they think it is. So in a sense, so you hear, you know, the great reset, which is talked about by, you know, the head of the uh, Davos and you get folks, you know, whether it's a, you know, your sense makers, your your kind of white male rebel wisdom crowd is kind of into this stuff, and some of the game B people are into it. The idea that you can kind of reboot civilization according to the new principles of the blockchain and technology and everything we know about you know systems theory and get something better. Um, but I mean, it's all ludicrous, right? It's kind of the Sim City understanding of how society works. That you just you know, use a better model and build it up from scratch. And the only people I know, other than the technologists, the only people who take it truly seriously 
are the conspiracy theorists. Because it sounds like, oh, you know, a conspiracy theorist has been sitting around waiting for someone to say the world is actually controlled by blockchains and we're going to build post-human entities that are going to make sure everybody behaves and plays nicely and does what they're supposed to do. So it fuels the worst of the worst paranoid fantasies. If you take, I mean, that's really all conspiracy theory is, are people who take these tech bros at face value. That's what- what Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, yeah, and it's such a it's such an obviously uncomfortable time um, where all this stuff is like suddenly out in the open, running around, and you know, it as dovetailing with the resurgence of the extreme right, and conspiracy theories are not cool anymore at all. Right. You know, and the collapse of all the things we were talking about before in a new renaissance, things like the collapse of the nation state and all. What's going to happen? It's going to push back. Right. Make America great again. No, we're not going anywhere. We're here. It's like, sorry, it's going away. You know, <laughs> do, do you have a they, sense of where that is at and any thoughts on where you think that's going to go? What the MAGA movement? And well, America I, and all? The, just that that holding on that resurgence of of not, of not whatever you want to call it, nationalism, the, the nation state, the far right. I don't know. I mean, it's possible that we are not up to the challenge of this moment. And if we're not, then like Rome and other civilizations before us, this one will end. You know, (laughs) I think humans will go on in some form, but it's possible that this will end and people will look at highways and cars and TVs the way that the medieval Brits looked at the aqueducts and Roman architecture saying, what weirds built this, you know, not even knowing how to, how to, you cannot even able to reverse engineer that stuff. Um, I'm hoping not. I'm hoping that we're getting enough little peaks and insights into how silly things are that we're, even if we're moving into states of increasing poverty, that that will kind of force the left and the right or what the the artificially divided left and right to see each other in their common interests and start working together. Nothing like digging your neighbor's house out of a mudslide to make you realize that you and the volunteer fire department MAGA guys really believe all the same stuff. Um, So I'm trying to be hopeful that the worst things get, the better humans get. You know, that will get some kind of a Jode family truck. You remember all those kind of <laughs> those communist farms and Grapes of Wrath and, yeah, yeah. you know, that we'll see platform cooperatives and you know, people are going to look at, at you know, I used to love the guy, you know, like Jason Callick, Canis and mm. Elon Musk and all these guys making these crazy quotes online about how markets work and realize, oh my God, this is all just nuts. And uh, uh, you know, go to this, and that's what I like about MAGA is there's a certain common sense in it. <laughs> that's like, quite a, a statement there. <laughs> well, there is among those people. There's a certain that when it gets scaled is when it gets crazy. When mm. they start to try to think about national governments and all that, but I understand the idea of like uh, of, of localism and empowering distributed empowerment. A lot of that. I mean, take away some of the ideology off of MAGA, and they sound like an occupier. You know, there's yeah. there's a commonality there, um, and take some of the uh, 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 inability to forgive and reconcile from 
a uh, uh, an extremist social justice warrior, and you get yeah something closer to a MAGA person too. No, for I mean, sure. I mean, the devil is in the proposed solution to the the problem they've identified. Yeah, the devil's yeah. always in the solution, which is why we shouldn't go towards solutions. You know, I'm not. I'm so don't be a techno solutionist. Don't keep your eyes on the prize and an ends justifies the means journey toward whatever you think is the thing. It's like, that's all my work now is about how do you engender an appropriate sensibility in the moment? And that's always about kind of denaturalizing power so people can distinguish between nature and social constructions. And you look at things like money and jobs and employment and go, oh, okay, these are all human constructions. These are social constructions that are not necessarily the rules of reality. You, you, uh, uh, um, trigger agency. So people realize that they're writing the codes by which we live. I mean, that's what magic really does is trigger a sense of agency over the world. You re-socialize people. So they realize we can do this together, that the other people are not your enemies. Your success is not individual. And finally, most importantly, you cultivate awe. That's the thing that's been, hmm. been eliminated from our society is a sense of awe, ecstatic ex group experience. You know, when you have an experience of awe, you're more generous for hours or days later. You know, you experience yourself as one with everything. Your immune system changes. Your mm. cytokine response is regulated after an experience of awe. So in my work, what I'm trying to do is rather than saying, oh, everybody, let's go toward this. I'm trying to engender the sensibilities and behaviors that make the world a bit less dependent on having a positive goal, a positive uh, uh, place that we're steering this ship, you know, and more of a, oh, we can all get along here, you know, just fine the way we are. You mentioned towards the end of the book, um, creating a counterculture to this mindset. And you, you use the phrase using circles and not arrows and long-term thinking instead of escape velocity. And I thought that was great. And I was wondering if you wanted to elaborate on that more yeah i mean um part of the let me stop it and start again i got okay. another uh again echoes we'll let it process and see let me see did yours go up yeah i just hit no thanks all right i'm gonna re and you'll come back and i'm here now i'm gonna find that little switch again it's weird that it did this i wonder it um that's disabled i'm gonna disable it and then re-enable it all right now it's gone again good um start recording all right, I'll remember all these. And then we should stop soon. I'm supposed to do a thing okay. for anyway. Yep. Um, circular. Just thinking the easiest, the easiest way in. I mean, what I'm trying to do is help move away from kind of this telos understanding of things. You know, a lot of the tech bros are like into Desjardins and the Omega point, and we're going to get there just over that next hill is yeah, the thing. I've heard that gonna, before. Yeah. Right. You know, rise from the chrysalis of matter is pure consciousness, get to game B, experience the fractal reality, you know, and, uh, uh, 
anybody who gets experienced enough with psychedelics or reads Be Here Now or anything says there's no door, there's no thing, there's no place to go. You're here. This is it. You want to be enlightened? Fine. You're enlightened. Done. You know, I dub you enlightened. It's almost Wizard of Ozzy in that sense of just like, fine, it's done. It's even what, what est for all ests and landmarks problems. That was the best thing about it was saying, did you get it? You got it. Good. All right. Now can you now move on with your life? You know, it's that. It's it's um realizing that it's it's in the moment. There's nowhere, there's nowhere to go. So, you know, progress has always been about um, you know, let's go west, let's escape from what we're doing, let's enslave these people and then move on. And you're keeping trying to accelerate beyond where you just were. So the people you just fucked over can't catch up with you. And you move ahead, you escape mm. the um the externalities of what you've done. You always need a new frontier, a new this. And then the digital was that new frontier, and it it, it inspired a frontier mentality to the point where it got filled up. And then Mark Zuckerberg goes meta on that. He's like, oh no, this was it, but no, it's gonna be up there. And the next thing, and we rise to the next one, the next one, the next one. And whenever you have that eyes on the prize mentality, you end up in an ends justifies the means journey where you can fuck up people today. You can call the living people today. The 8 billion people today are the larva because we're going to go through and get to chapter three where we get wings and sprout off the planet or become digital and move into the thing. And that that dovetails perfectly with capitalism, which is always about you keep going, you keep growing, infinite growth. Always, it just keeps moving. You find a new terrain, a new market, and then grow and creatively destroy and go, go, go. And it, 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 those of us in, in, in sort of regenerative economics talk about circular economics, which is about how do you recirculate value through a community rather than extracting value from a community. So instead of putting a Walmart there to get all the money out of a town and then moving on, you know, how can you... Um, generate um, the exchange of value, the circularity of value exchange in a community. So it's more like a Dyson vacuum cleaner than a regular vacuum that sucks out. It's it's how do you um, optimize for the circulation of value through a town? And that's, you know, obviously it's by buying locally. And, and, and I, I go to towns and talk to them about commerce. And I say, look, instead of earning $10 once, what if you earned $1 10 times that it came around 10 times. You get the same 10, but it moved constantly. And that's simple behaviors I'm asking people to try. So it's like, you got to put a picture on the wall and you don't have a drill. What we do in America now is you go to Home Depot and buy a minimum viable product drill that you're going to plug in, charge up, use once, stick it in the garage or something, and it's going to break before you could use it again. You've sent kids into the mines to get the cobalt and the rare earth metals for this fucking thing. Then you send kids into the uh, junk pile in Brazil to get the uh, reusable parts off it. Everybody's getting toxified. You know, what if you went to Bob's house and borrowed a fucking drill? Bob, can I borrow your drill? He gives you a big metal drill. He, better yet, he's going to come over to your house and drill the hole for you because you were going to stick it right in the sheet wall. And he's like, no, no, you want to stick it in the stud. This is called a stud finder, Doug. And this is how you do it. And then why don't we do that? Because if we do that, then I'm going to owe something to Bob. What if Bob then's going to want to borrow my lawnmower or wants me to probably, he's got the tools, but he wants me to tutor his kid in calculus because he knows I'm nerdy Doug and I can supply him with that. What have I gotten myself into here? Where does it stop? You know, and it's like, that's circularity. That's the circular community. That's the thing. And the circular is also, of course, the indigenous wisdom of understanding things come in cycles. Everything comes back. You don't earn enough money to retire and then it ends, yeah. right? become part of the cycle of life. It's a very different 
approach. But only in America do we think you've got to earn enough money during your working years to keep yourself alive without any help when you're old. <laughs> yeah. What kind of world is that? Yeah. Right? That's the yeah. People. Yeah. yeah. I, I thought I did think it was super interesting that you use the example of um, local community economics with black Americans as a concrete mm. example. That was super interesting because now all of a sudden it's something concrete to think about. Yeah, and they did it. Because the funny thing is I would do this talk and talk about local economics and circular economics and people would get up and say, well, you know, that works. Sounds fine for like some white progressive place like Ithaca, but mm. how would inner city people be able to ever understand something like that? Yeah, that's that? a bit of a loaded phrase. Yeah. And I'm like, you fucking asshole, liberal, you know, <laughs> uh, 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 poser. It's like, look at your history. I mean, it was black Americans who developed cooperativism, you know, in the 1700s, you know, saving up for each other's funerals, doing mutual aid. That's where we got the so-called Black Wall Street, that that town near Tulsa, that black area there. The reason why it did well, ironically, is because it was cut off from the economy. They wouldn't let the blacks be part of the larger economy. So they had to build their own town and they transacted with each other and circulated wealth, and they got as wealthy as those medieval towns. You know, the medieval towns using the local markets that I talked about got so wealthy, they built cathedrals. That was their investment in the future. It wasn't the Pope writing a check hmm. for cathedrals in those small European towns. It was the wealth of the towns that was that was circulating and a bit of uh, a bit of uh, de Medici. Uh, accumulation as well, right. admittedly, but um, these were these were local attractions that, that were sponsored with local money, and the same thing happens when you allow that circular Dyson effect to happen. But it also happens for you emotionally and spiritually when you stop thinking of your life as a line that goes from your birth yeah. to your death, but as something much more circular and regenerative and continuous. And um, boy, but again, to do that, you've got to let go. You got to let go, like you're saying, of that, of of your line. Yeah, you know, you have to and, participate and, and, and lose surrender to the circle. Yeah, and to participate, you have to let go of control. Which maybe that's a good, maybe that's a good thing to end on. I know you have a, another yeah. thing to go on. So, um, I would love to keep talking forever. But uh, where can people find Survival of the Richest, the book, and more about you and any anything uh, upcoming they should know about? Um, well, Survival of the Richest, you can find in any bookstore or library. If your library doesn't have it, ask them to order it. I still get a sale. You still get the book and you don't have to pay. Um, libraries are cool, right? Remember libraries? I, could you imagine us trying to start libraries today? We'd never be able to do it. Like, what the fuck is this? You're going to hurt the books companies. You're gonna, they're great. Yep. They're free. You go, you get your your, your book. Um, it's a comments. Um, do that. Go to check me out at rushcuff.com or I've got a podcast called Team Human that you can hear at teamhuman.fm or on any of those things, you know, those podcasty things. And the other thing that your listeners would really be into is I did two graphic novels that are of particular interest. One was called Testament. And it was, I mean, it's now it's, it was a comic. It's collected in four graphic novels that are really about the, it's an occult interpretation of Torah, of the Bible. And because the Bible is sex magic, that's what the Bible is. Sorry, Bible wow. is sex magic. That's or it's also sex magic. Strong statement. Um, and to get that understanding is fun. And then this other one I did called Alistair and Adolf, which is about the. Um, it's based on the factual occult war between Adolf Hitler and Aleister Crowley at the end of World War II, which is a lot of fun for occultists. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, well, 
um, then uh, hopefully people can get those at their local library instead of uh, yeah. from Jeff Bezos. All right. Well, thank you again um, for sharing your time, Doug. It's, it's always a privilege and an honor. And thank you again for being on. Thank you. All thank right. you for having me. Okay. Talk to you later. All right. Hope you really, really enjoyed that. I definitely had a lot of fun in that conversation. Meet us at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, my school for magic, meditation, and mysticism, where you can learn all the skills you need to unleash your true self. I will see you in class. And until next time, hang in there.